The following review came from the Theological and Literary Review, a magazine that came out of Andover Theological Seminary. This article is from 1838. It is called A Review of John Owen on Indwelling Sin in Believers. The title we have chosen almost demands an apology. Has not the subject which it indicates been of late extensively banished from pulpits reputedly orthodox? Does it harmonize with the general taste and movement of the religious public? The abetter of modern improvements in theology will indignantly ask what attempt to revive a forgotten dogma of past centuries. Why harass the enterprising young disciples with gloomy and chilling views of his imperfections? Others will express their amazement that any man in the 19th century should have the hardihood to divert attention in the smallest degree from the widespread enormous evils which will not cease from the earth without the united and earnest endeavors of all Christians. To others, however, we trust not a few. It will seem neither ill-timed nor of doubtful utility to bespeak a serious consideration for a topic which enters into the very essence of the Christian calling, especially as it is our purpose to do little more than furnish quotations from the profound treatise of John Owen, which bears the above title. In former years, this work ministered not a little to that serious, solid piety which in many churches now appears ready to vanish away. In many temptations and afflictions, the author felt constrained to publish his views on this subject for reasons which might now be urged with almost equal truth, quote, the effects and fruits of it, indwelling sin, which we see in the apostasies and backslidings of many, the scandalous sins and miscarriages of some, and the course and lives of the most seem to call for a due consideration of it. End quote. It was the practice of Owen to reason out of the scriptures. Accordingly, in support of the views entertained in the tract before us, he appeals to Romans seven twenty one. I find then a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. In common with the great body of evangelical commentators and divines from Augustine to our own times, the author entertained no doubt that in the latter part of this chapter, Paul speaks of a regenerate person. We are aware that some professedly Calvinistic writers have of late adopted that view of the passage which Pelagians and Arminians have always labored to establish. With what success... They have fortified their interpretation from the resources of criticism, theology, and experience. This is not the place to inquire, but that their mode of expounding the passage is adapted to delude the impenitent and to perplex real saints we cannot doubt. In the tract styled Paul Not Carnal, the perfectionists claim, in defense of their main proposition, the reasoning of these critics upon the passage in question, and some acute minds are at a loss to know how the claim will be set aside. And here, before proceeding to the views of Owen, it is proper to remark that Professor Stewart of Andover, in the first edition of his commentary on Romans, alleged that Augustine at first applied chapter seven fourteen to 25 to the unregenerate, 
but afterwards recanted this opinion in the heat of dispute with Pelagius. Shortly after the appearance of this statement, one of our leading journals furnished in respect to the change of Augustine's views the testimony of Neander, confessedly the first ecclesiastical historian of this age, from which it is certain that several years before Augustine heard of Pelagius, his own religious experience led him to apply these expressions of Paul to true believers. It remains to be known on what grounds the second edition of the commentary repeats the gross and injurious misrepresentation which had been thus publicly exposed. To return to Owen, he takes that for granted which may undeniably be proved and evinced, namely, that it is the condition of a regenerate person with respect unto the power of indwelling sin, which is there proposed and exemplified by and in the person of the apostle himself. I find then a law, and so on. Now that which we observe from this name, or term of a law, attributed unto sin is, that there is an exceeding efficacy and power in the remainder of indwelling sin in believers, with a constant working towards evil. Thus it is with believers, it is a law even in them, though not to them. Though its rule be broken, its strength weakened and impaired, its root mortified, Yet it is a law still of great force and efficacy. I find then, or therefore, a law. He found it. It had been told him. There was such a law. It had been preached unto him. But it is one thing to know it in general that there is a law of sin. And another thing for a man to have an experience of the power of this law of sin in himself. For a man to find his sickness and danger thereon from its effects is another thing than to hear a discourse about a disease from its causes. The general frame of believers, notwithstanding the inhabitation of the law of sin, is here also expressed. They would do good. The habitual inclination of their will is unto good. This law in them is not a law unto them as it is to unbelievers. This, in their worst condition, distinguishes them from unbelievers in their best. The will in unbelievers is under the power of the law of sin. The opposition they make to sin, either in the roots or branches of it, is from their light and consciences. The will of sinning in them is never taken away. Take away all other considerations and hindrances, and they would sin willingly always. But in believers there is an habitual disposition, an inclination in their wills unto that which is spiritually good. And here lie the springs of the whole course of our obedience. An acquaintance with these several principles and their actions is a principal part of our wisdom. They are, upon the matter, next to the free grace of God, in our justification by the blood of Christ, the only things wherein the glory of God and our own souls are concerned. These are the springs of our holiness and our sins, of our joys and troubles, of our refreshments and sorrows. It is then our concernment to be thoroughly acquainted with these things who intend to walk with God or to glorify Him in this world. 
and hence we may see what wisdom is required in the guiding and management of our hearts and ways before God, where the subjects of a ruler are in feuds and oppositions one against another. Unless great wisdom be used in the government of the whole, all things will quickly be ruinous in that state. There are these contrary principles in the hearts of believers, and if they labor not to be spiritually wise, how shall they be able to steer their course aright? Having evinced the propriety of calling sin a law on account of its efficacy as an inbred, active evil, which still struggles for dominion, holding out its pleasures for rewards on the one hand and for punishments on the other, the difficulties that attend evangelical obedience, the author summons attention to the alarming advantages which it has on account of being an indwelling law. Quote, it always abides in the soul. It is never absent. The apostle twice uses the expression, it dwelleth in me. There is its constant residence and habitation, if it came upon the soul only at certain seasons, much obedience might be perfectly accomplished in its absence. Yea, and as they deal with usurping tyrants, whom they intend to thrust out of a city, the gates might be sometimes shut against it, that it might not return. The soul might fortify itself against it, but the soul is its home. There it dwells and is no wanderer. Wherever you are, Whatever you are about, this law of sin is always in you, in the best that you do, and in the worst. Men little consider what a dangerous companion is always at home with them. There is a living coal continually in their houses, which if it be not looked unto will fire them, and it may be consumed them. An inmate may dwell in a house, and yet not always be meddling with what the good man of the house has to do. But it is so with this law, that it will be present with us in everything we do. Would you pray? Would you hear? Would you give alms? Would you meditate? Would you be in any duty acting faith on God and love towards Him? Would you work righteousness? Would you resist temptations, this troublesome, perplexing indweller will still, more or less, put itself upon you, so that you cannot perfectly and completely accomplish the thing that is good. This law of sin adheres as a depraved principle unto our minds in darkness and vanity, unto our affections and sensuality, unto our wills and a loathing of and aversion from that which is good and by some more or all of these is continually putting itself upon us in inclinations, motions, or suggestions to evil, when we would be most gladly quit of it. It has great facility and easiness in the application of itself unto its work. The soul cannot apply itself to any duty of a man, but it must be by the exercise of those faculties wherein this law has its residence. Is the understanding or the mind to be applied to anything? There it is in ignorance, darkness, vanity, folly, madness. Is the will to be engaged 
There it is also in spiritual deadness, stubbornness, and the roots of obstinacy. It's a heart and affections to be set on work. There it is in inclination to the world and present things and sensuality with proneness to all manner of defilements. The sighs and tears of the little flock who pant after perfect conformity to the divine will bear witness to the fidelity with which Owen here is elsewhere portrays the characteristics of the old man which is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts. After making such spiritual attainments as rendered him in truth a burning and a shiny light, Augustine confessed, quote, I am poor and needy, and my best method is to seek thy mercy in secret groans and in self-abhorrence, till thou perfect that which concerneth me. My wholesome griefs and pernicious pleasures contend together, and I know not on which side victory stands. Woe is me! Thou art my physician, I am sick, thou art merciful, I am wretched, all my hope lies in thy immense mercy. Give what thou commandest, and command what thou wilt. May it not with reason be asked whether the general strain of preaching at the present day, as it seldom and lightly touches the remaining corruptions of believers, does not fail to promote, as it ought, is it not notorious that the thorough, skillful development to the people of God of the destructive maladies which still cleave to their spirits is rarely attempted by numbers who are solemnly charged to take heed unto the flocks over which the Holy Ghost hath made them overseers? Whence this fundamental defect in administrations of so many pastors? In some cases, no doubt, the causes to be sought in the preacher's own want of gracious affections Many of that day shall say, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, to whom he will reply, I never knew you. It is a dreadful thing, said Richard Baxter, to be an unsanctified professor, but much more to be an unsanctified preacher. If such a wretched man would take my counsel, he should make a stand and call his heart and life to account. He should fall a preaching a while to himself before he preached to others any more. He should consider whether a wicked preacher shall stand in the judgment or a sinner in the assembly of the just. When such thoughts as these have entered into his soul and kindly wrought upon his conscience, I would advise him next to go to the congregation and there preach over Origen's sermon on Psalm 50, verses 16 and 17. But to the wicked God saith, What hast thou to do to declare my statutes, or that thou shouldest take my covenant into thy mouth, seeing thou hatest instruction, and hast cast my words behind thee? When he has read this text, I would have him sit down as Origen did, expound and apply it by his tears, end quote. In other cases, theological error will account for the alleged defect, and scriptural views of native depravity tend strongly to this result. If the unregenerate have such ability as some claim for them, it is evident that believers need no extraordinary aids to complete their sanctification. These teachers are not likely to be so inconsistent as to dwell with much earnestness on the dependence of true Christians and the necessity of their watching unto prayer. 
If the enemy, when in full strength, may be conquered with comparative ease, why represent him as dangerous after a stronger than he has overcome him and taken from him all his armor? Accordingly, that perfect sanctification is attainable and has actually been attained by many saints in the present life is boldly taught by some who stand in the front rank of modern theological reformers. Others, less bold or less thoroughly imbued with the new divinity, feel its influence to such a degree that spiritual searching discourses directed to the church are rarely brought out of their treasures. That portion of their flocks who still make serious business of cultivating the graces of the Spirit, notwithstanding the downward tendency of the times, complain that their pastors do not aid them in their conflicts with bosom sins, they hear little respecting the power and deceitfulness of remaining corruption, and the divine suckers appointed for those who live the life that now is by faith on the Son of God. A recurrence to the treatise of Owen will show that, in whatever way the deficiency in question may be accounted for, it endangers the vital interests of genuine religion. The strength of the law of sin is enhanced by the two leading properties of the heart, in which it resides. First, it is unsearchable. We fight with an enemy whose secret strength we cannot discover, whom we cannot follow into its retirements. Hence, oftentimes, when we are ready to think sin quite ruined, after a while we find it was but out of sight. It has covers and retreats in an unsearchable heart, whither we cannot pursue it. Secondly, it is deceitful. Who can mention the treacheries and deceits that lie in the heart of man? It is not for nothing that the Holy Ghost so expresses it. It is deceitful above all things, uncertain in what it doeth, and false in what it promiseth. And hence, among other causes, it is that, in the pursuit of our war against sin, we have not only the old work to do over and over, but a new work still, while we live in this world steal new stratagems and wiles to deal with, as a manner will be where unsearchableness and deceitfulness are to be contended with. There is no way for us to pursue sin in its unsearchable habitation, but by being endless in its pursuit. It may be under some great affliction. It may be in some imminent enjoyment of God in the sense of blessed communion with Christ. We have been ready to say that there was an end of sin, that it was dead and gone forever. But have we not found the contrary by experience? Has it not manifested that it was only retired into some unsearchable recesses of the heart as to its being and nature, though it may be greatly weakened in its power? This law of sin, so active and so strongly entrenched, has properties the most appalling, only one of which is considered by the author. Quote, it is enmity against God. As it is enmity, every part and parcel of it, the least degree of it that can possibly remain in anyone, is enmity still. It may not be so effectual and powerful in operation as where it hath more life and vigor, but it is enmity still. As every drop of poison is poison and will infect, and every spark of fire is fire and will burn, so is everything of the law of sin the last, the least of it. It is enmity. It will poison. It will burn. 
Mortification abates of its force, but does not change its nature. Grace changes the nature of man, but nothing can change the nature of sin. When a man has enmity itself to deal with, nothing is to be expected but continual fighting to the destruction of one party. If it be not overcome and destroyed, it will overcome and destroy the soul. It is never quiet, conquering nor conquered. It is in vain for a man to have any expectation of rest from his lust, but by its death, of absolute freedom, but by his own death. Some seek for quietness by laboring to satisfy their corruptions, making provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. This is to a slake fire by wood and oil. You cannot bargain with the fire to take but so much of your houses. You have no way but to quench it. The actings and operations of this inward foe confirm all that has been affirmed respecting its power. Power is an act of life, and operation is the only discoverer of life. When I would do good, evil is present with me, that is, to hinder me, to obstruct me in my duty, because it abhors and loathes a thing which I have in hand. It will keep me off from it, if possible. Unless the hand of God and His Spirit be high and strong upon a soul, even when convictions, sense of duty, dear and real esteem of God and communion with Him have carried the soul into its closet, yet if there be not the power and vigor of spiritual life, constantly at work, there will be a secret loathness in them unto duty, yea, sometimes there will be a violent inclination to the contrary. And here has been the beginning of the apostasy of many professors and the source of many foolish sensual opinions, finding their aversion in their minds and affections from closeness and constancy in private spiritual duties, not knowing how to conquer and prevail against these difficulties through him who enables us, they have at first been subdued to a neglect of them, first partial, then total, until having lost all conscience of them, they have had a door open to all sin and licentiousness, and so to a full and utter apostasy. If the least loose liberty or advantage be given unto indwelling sin, if it be not perpetually watched over, it will work to a strange and unexpected issue. The mind, the most spiritual part of the soul, hath its lusts, no less than the sensual appetite. Hence it is that when the soul is oftentimes doing, as it were, quite another thing, engaged quite upon another design, sin starts that in the heart, or the imaginations of it, that carries it away into that which is evil and sinful. Yea, to manifest its power, sometimes when the soul is seriously engaged in the mortification of any sin, it will, by one means or other, lead it away into a diligence with that very sin whose ruin it is seeking and whose mortification it is engaged in. But this enmity rests not there. It cannot rest. It urges, presses, and pursues its purposes with earnestness, strength, and vigor, fighting and contending and warring to obtain its end and purpose. Now, if it be so, that grace has a sovereign power in the understanding, will, and affections, whence is it that it does not always prevail, that we do not always do that which we would, and abstain from that which we would not? 
Is it not strange that a man should not do that which he chooses, wills, likes, delights in? Is there anything more required to enable us to that which is good? But here lies the difficulty in the entangling opposition that is made by the rebellion of this law of sin. Neither is it expressible with what vigor and variety sin acts itself in this manner. Sometimes it proposes diversion, sometimes it causes weariness, sometimes it finds out difficulties, sometimes stirs up contrary affections, sometimes it begets prejudices in one way or another, entangles a soul, so that it never suffers grace to have an absolute and complete success in any duty. It also rebels in respect to particular duties. Woeful entanglements do poor creatures meet with upon this account. Take an instance in prayer. Instead of that free and large communion with God that they aim at, the best that their souls arrive to, but to go away mourning for their folly, deadness, and indisposition. Enemies in war are restless and importunate. So is the law of sin. Does it set upon the soul? Cast off its motions. It returns again. Rebuke them by the power of grace. They withdraw for a while and return again. Set before them the cross of Christ. They do as those that came to take him. At the sight of him they went backwards and fell under the ground. But they rose again and laid hands on him. Sin gives place for a season but returns and presses on the soul again. Reproach it with its folly and madness, it knows no shame, but presses on still. Let the thoughts of the mind strive to fly from it, it follows as on the wings of the wind, and by this importunity it wearies and wears out the soul. There is nothing more marvelous nor dreadful in the working of sin than this, of its importunity. The soul knows not what to make of it. It dislikes abhors, abominates the evil, it tends unto, it despises the thoughts of it, hates them as hell, and yet is by itself imposed on with them, as if it were another person, or an express enemy got within him. I do not say that this is the ordinary condition of believers, but thus it is often when this law of sin arises up to war. Now, of all things in our condition, there is nothing so suited to teach us to walk humbly and mournfully before the Lord as the vile remainders of enmity against God which are yet in our hearts. It may be some who are wise and grown in other truths may yet be little skilled in searching their own hearts, that they may be slow in the perception and understanding of these things. But this sloth and neglect is to be shaken off if we have any regard to our own souls. Would other professors, besides hypocrites, walk with so much boldness and security as some do? If they consider to write what a dreadful enemy they continually carry about them and in them? End quote. We cannot forbear to extend our extracts from this searching author a little further, though at the hazard of being tedious to some readers, because we believe that his deep views of evangelical truth and Christian experience must be inculcated again with solemnity and force before the piety of our churches will recover a healthy tone. We cannot assent to the opinion often avowed of late that the gospel ministry fulfills its chief design in the conversion of sinners. One of its noblest ends is the perfecting of the saints, 
the edifying of the body of Christ, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing. It were easy to demonstrate by undeniable facts of recent occurrence how preposterous is the attempt to gain these objects by expatiating on the power of the church and enforcing all sorts of duties except the mortification of sin. How many sermons have issued from the press within twenty years with such titles as The Real Christian, A Higher Standard of Holiness, the true object of which is to press larger contributions from the church or to urge on in some way the vast complex machinery intended for the reformation of the world, to stimulate those just entering on a religious life with glowing representations of the splendid achievements which the church expects of them on the open field of benevolent enterprise is no doubt less difficult than to lay open the unsearchable and baneful corruptions of the heart, but is it equally scriptural and safe? Under the captivating power of sin, our author remarks that, quote, success is the greatest evidence of power, and leading captive in war is the height of success. The apostle treats not here of our being captivated unto this or that sin, but unto the law of sin. This leading captive manifests our condition to be miserable and wretched, to be thus yoked and dealt with against the judgment of the mind, the choice and consent of the will. How sad is it! When the neck is sore and tender with former pressures to be compelled to bear the yoke again, this pierces, this grieves, this even breaks the heart. What more dreadful condition! Hence the apostle cries out as one quite weary and ready to faint. Sin rises up in the heart, is denied by the law of grace, and rebuked. It returns and exerts its poison again. The soul is startled, casts it off. It returns again with new violence and importunity. The soul cries out for help and deliverance, seeks round about to all springs of gospel grace and relief, trembles at the furious assaults of sin, and casts itself into the arms of Christ for deliverance. The great wisdom and security of the soul in dealing with indwelling sin is to put a violent stop to its beginnings, its first motions and actings, venture all on the first attempt, die rather than yield one step unto it. Hast thou not been brought up this slave delicately, it would not now have presumed beyond the sun. The deceitfulness of the law of sin is seen in its efforts to divert the mind from a due apprehension of the vileness, abomination, and danger of sin. It separates between the doctrines of grace and the use and end of it. This is a trial and touchstone of gospel light. If it keep the heart sensible of sin, humble, lowly, and broken on that account, if it teach us to water a free pardon with tears, to detest forgiven sin, to watch diligently for the ruin of that which we are yet assured shall never ruin us, it is divine from above, of the spirit of grace. If it secretly and insensibly make men loose and slight in their thoughts about sin, it is adulterate, selfish, and false. A stable, solid, resolved mind in the things of God, not easily moved, diverted, changed, nor drawn aside, 
Am I not apt to hearken after corrupt reasonings or pretenses to draw it off from duty? This is that which the Apostle exhorts believers to. 1 Corinthians 15.58 The power of indwelling sin is demonstrated by the effects it has had in the lives of believers, and that too in men not out of an ordinary size, but higher than their brethren, by the shoulders and upwards in profession, yea, in real holiness. Such were Noah, David, Hezekiah, and others. And surely that must needs be of a mighty efficacy that could hurry such giants in the ways of God into such abominable sins as they fell into. An ordinary engine could never have turned them out of the course of their obedience, It was a poison that no athletic constitution of spiritual health, no antidote, could withstand. And habitual declension from first engagements unto God, from first strictness and duties and obedience, is ordinary and common among professors. How is it with the best? Are not almost all grown cold and slack? Were not their souls solicitous about the interest of Christ in the world, like Eli's about the ark? Did they not contend earnestly for the truth, once delivered to the saints, and every parcel of it? And do now the generality of professors abide in this frame? To see men living under and enjoying all the means of spiritual thriving, yet to decay, not to be fat and flourishing, but rather daily to pine and wither, this argues some secret powerful distemper. This is indwelling sin. The end of all communications of grace and supplies of life from the living head is the increase of the whole body, and every member of it, and the edifying of itself in love. His treasures of grace are unsearchable, his stores inexhaustible, his life the fountain of ours, full and eternal, his heart bounteous and large, his hand open and liberal. Whence then is it? Whence then is it that they do not all flourish and thrive exceedingly? Indwelling sin oftentimes prevails to the stopping of the springs of gospel obedience by false and foolish opinions, corrupting the simplicity of the gospel. False opinions are the works of the flesh, from the vanity and darkness of the minds of men with a mixture more or less of corrupt affections do they mostly proceed. The apostle was jealous over his Corinthians in this manner. He was afraid, lest her mind should be, by any means, corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Hence John cautions the elect lady and her children to take heed that they were not seduced, lest they should lose the things that they had wrought. We have innumerable instances hereof in the days in which we live, and as this is done grossly and openly in some, So there are more secret and plausible insinuations of corrupt opinions tainting the springs and fountains of gospel obedience and through the vanity of men's minds getting ground upon them. Such are all those that tend to the extenuation of special grace and its freedom and efficacy and the advancement of the wills or the endeavors of men in their spiritual power and ability. They are all the works of the flesh and howsoever some may pretend a usefulness in them, to the promotion of holiness, they will be found to taint the springs of true evangelical obedience, and sensibly to turn the heart from God and bring the whole soul into spiritual decay." End quote. On rising from the perusal of John Owen's work, 
We are confirmed in the belief that a disproportionate share of effort is at present devoted to the correction of political wrongs and open vice. Thousands are running to and fro, hot in their zeal to rid the world of the grapes of gall by attacking the clusters themselves, while few adopt a more certain method of aiming a mortal blow at the master root. This treatise also renders very manifest the folly of trusting in man and making flesh our arm for the support of the great interests of religion. Our most trusty leaders have not altogether quelled the motions of the flesh. The subtle poison of indwelling sin still lurks in the eloquent preacher and the accomplished divine. In the following mournful testimony of Richard Baxter, too many living witnesses must concur, quote, Truly the sad experiences of these times have much abased my confidence in man, and caused to have lower thoughts of the best than sometimes I have had. I confess I look on man as such a distempered, slippery, and inconstant thing, that as I shall never more call any man on earth my friend, but with a supposition that he may possibly become my enemy. So I shall never be so confident of any man's fidelity to Christ as not withal to suspect that he may possibly forsake him. Nor shall I boast of any man's service for the gospel, but with a jealousy that he may be drawn to do as much against it. End quote. Richard Baxter. That was a review in the 1838 copy of the Theological Journal and Literary Review, which came out of Andover Theological Seminary. Andover Theological Seminary was known in America as a great place to produce missionaries, such as Adoniram Judson. The Puritan Hard Drive and the free online Puritan Hard Drive videos are available at PuritanDownloads.com, along with many other Puritan and Reformed books for as little as 99 cents each. Hello, and welcome to this introductory video for the Puritan Hard Drive by Stillwater's Revival Books. You will soon see why the Puritan Hard Drive is a technological revolution in Puritan, Reformation, and Covenanter studies. For over 25 years, Stillwater's Revival Books has provided the worldwide Christian community with the finest in Puritan and Reformation resources, including classic and contemporary printed works, inspirational sermons, audiobooks, and videos. In recent years, our collection of great Christian works has more than doubled, growing to a library that would occupy nearly 140 CDs. The Puritan Hard Drive is a tremendous library of over 12,500 Christian resources on an external hard drive that fits easily in your pocket or purse. It features the works of nearly 800 classic and contemporary authors, including John Bunyan, Matthew Henry, Jonathan Edwards, Thomas Manton, Samuel Rutherford, and Charles Spurgeon. Timeless works like the English Hexapla, Fox's Book of Martyrs, Sketches of the Covenanters, and from the Puritan Divines, the complete 34-volume set of the Puritan Fast Sermons. Many of these books are rare and classic titles unavailable anywhere else. Over 25 years in the making, the Puritan hard drive is simply the most extensive Christian collection ever released. The Puritan hard drive comprises more than 12,500 Puritan and Reformation resources, 
over half a million pages of great Christian books, more than 10,000 sermons and audiobooks in MP3 format, providing years of listening enjoyment, over 70 videos, all in all, a library of thousands of exceptional works accessible and affordable to everyone. Included on the Puritan hard drive is a custom search engine that makes it easy to find, browse, and organize the resources in your library. And much easier than trying to wade through a typical file directory on your computer. Connect the Puritan hard drive to any available USB port on your PC or Mac. The drive is self-contained, so there's no software to install or configure. Within moments, you can begin exploring the library by running the custom search interface. It's also a knowledge base with information about each work, including the author, title, description, keywords, and subject category. For you techies, this database contains over 15 million records of information. For all of us, that means we have an extremely powerful search and study tool. A list of all resources on the Puritan hard drive is available for viewing at any time. Here we see that the list of print materials contains over 2,100 works. This view is ideal for browsing all documents or media files in alphabetical order by title or by author. The list is rather long, so using the search function of the knowledge base is the easiest way to find resources of interest to you. For example, let's say that my pastor recommended a book by James Henley Thornwell. I can search the knowledge base by author by typing his name in this field or by selecting it from the complete list of nearly 800 authors provided at the click of a button. Clicking the search button executes the search and immediately returns a list of all resources by this author. In this case, I've quickly found the book that was recommended to me. Clicking on the green icon opens the resource, allowing me to begin my reading. Further details about any resource can be found by clicking on the book cover icon, which opens the resource detail page. From here, I can browse the details of this work. I can add and save my own notes about it and open the resource for reading, listening, or viewing. Your search capabilities don't end there. The majority of the rare, classic works on the Puritan hard drive now contain an embedded index. This means that the actual text of these resources is now fully searchable for the first time in history. Enter a search term in Adobe Acrobat Reader. In this case, a search for the word scripture yields instant results. Having searchable text also makes it possible to highlight, copy, and paste the text into another document, such as a sermon, a lesson plan, or a school paper. Less time spent on research means more time for reading, studying, and appreciating the resources in your library. Just another reason why the Puritan hard drive is a technological revolution in Puritan, Reformation, and Covenanter studies. Thank you for watching this introduction to the Puritan hard drive by Stillwater's Revival Books, serving Christians worldwide for over 25 years. Join us in our other videos as we demonstrate even more features and functionality of the Puritan hard drive. For more information, visit us on the web at puritandownloads.com. Until then, be well, and God bless.